Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Seeker Plus today. I am Trace, and this is our series on humor. We're re-airing this one from a while back. It's a great episode. Today we're going to talk about what happens in our brains when we find something funny, how our sense of humor even evolved in the first place, if we can teach robots and artificial intelligences to be funny, and not in like a takeover-the-world way, by the way, but like a super complex function way, because humor, not easy. We're also going to look at what makes something funny or not funny at all. Over the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to talk all about humor. And we've got a special guest coming back later in this. It's going to be great. P.S. As you're listening to this, tweet us with your favorite fun, innocent jokes. I definitely need some more mom and dad jokes in my life. You can find us at Seeker. You can find me at Trace Dominguez. Okay, let's kick into it. Our bodies have this crazy reaction to humor to something humorous. We we laugh. Laughter is really weird if you think about it. You know, we're kind of making these punctuated noises and it's really hard to hide. Everybody knows what's going on. But let's define laughter. Laughter is an unconscious physiological response to humor, meaning that you don't think about it. It just sort of happens when something tickles your funny bone. I mean, that does not literally tickles your funny bone, but you know what I mean. Laughter is the gestures you make, the way your face changes, the sounds that come out of your mouth. And there's even a study of laughter. The study is called gelatology. But the question is, where does laughter come from? Like all reactions in your body, it comes down from your brain, but Scientists aren't exactly sure what part of your brain. I mean, you can fake laugh. (laughs) It doesn't work, though. People know that you're fake laughing, even, you know, if you try really, really hard. One paper published in the journal Nature in 1998 talked about how doctors narrowed laughter's origin to a two-by-two centimeter area of the brain in the left superior frontal gyrus. This is it. In case you're not familiar with the map of the brain, that's a top front left part of your brain in the frontal lobe. And they found this on a 16-year-old girl. She was having seizures and the doctors were trying to figure out the cause. So they electrically stimulated her brain while she was awake. That's actually fairly normal in brain surgery because it's a very sensitive organ. You don't want to mess it up and have somebody be asleep and not know. So they did electrical stimulation on 85 different parts of her brain trying to stop these seizures. And every time one specific part of her brain and her left superior frontal gyrus was electrically stimulated, she laughed. And every time she laughed, she attributed the laughter to whatever she was looking at. So if the doctor held up a picture of a horse or something and stimulated that part of the brain, she would laugh and say that the horse was funny, which is pretty weird. At a low level of electricity, she would smile, and at a high level, she would laugh really, really hard. So you would think that this mystery is solved. That little spot on the left superior frontal gyrus is where humor is from, right? But that's actually not true at all. Other parts of the brain have also been implicated in humor and laughter. A study published in the journal Brain in 1999 found the sense of humor may be located in the right frontal lobe, which is a slightly different location. And this isn't about laughter. This is the ability to put things you hear together and connect them in a way that makes you understand that that is funny. We're doing exactly what comedians say you're never supposed to do. We're breaking down humor into these component parts. The study also showed people with brain damage in the right frontal area didn't like wordy or complicated jokes very much but they would laugh at slapstick and physical humor. So it could be that that chunk of the brain is 
part of our understanding of complex humor. Another study found that a part of the frontal lobe called the medial ventral prefrontal cortex always lit up when someone found something humorous. So that's yet another part of your brain that's implicated in something as simple as a joke. And hearing something funny will stimulate different parts of the brain depending on which joke you're hearing. Wordplay jokes stimulate the temporal lobe. Puns stimulate the language processing center, which makes sense. You have to understand that wordplay and you have to understand what's going on in a pun. The frontal lobe, the supplementary motor area, and nucleus acumens all can trigger at different times depending on what joke you're hearing. Basically, you hear a joke, you process it in one part of your brain, another part of your brain tells you that you get the joke, and then another part of your brain tells you to laugh, and then another part of your brain tells you that laughing is great and you should be happy. This is all science! But of course, science is still studying all of this stuff, and it isn't 100% clear exactly how these all work together. And laughter is just one part of humor, and understanding a joke is just another part. There is another addition to humor, and that is the social connection that it generates. Neuroscientists and professor of psychology at the University of Maryland, Robert Provine, did a study on laughter and then published a book on that. And part of his findings were that a lot of people laugh even when there's no humor involved. 20% of the laughter incidents that he recorded during his studies were just friendly social interactions. He found that people were 30 times more likely to laugh around other people than if they were alone, because I don't know, I imagine sitting alone in my apartment laughing is probably something from a you know horror movie more than anything else. But only eight times in 1,200 incidents did laughter interrupt someone while speaking. And instead, it was considered a social response. So someone said something and then someone laughed. And then the laughter continued the social interactions. Person A says something, person B laughs, person A says something else. That laughter was a response, as if they had responded with, with verbiage, you know? Laughter is a social connection. It's a response that actually starts really early on in life. Some say the first two ways we will communicate as babies are laughter and tears. Babies will start smiling as early as one to three months and learn how to laugh within three to six. But before we get to how humor evolved, I'm going to tell you a quick joke. It's one of my favorites. It's a terrible dad joke. Here we go. An egg, bacon, and coffee walk into a bar. And Bacon goes up to the bar and he says to the bartender, hey, like three beers for me and my friends. The bartender looks at him and says, no way, man. We don't serve breakfast here. (laughs) (laughs) I I love that one. It gets me every time. Humor evolved a long time ago, way before you were even a human. We all have humor of some sort, but it's not just for us. It's also for the people around us. And it may have started in our ape ancestors. One theory about how we developed laughter is is as a mechanism to tell a sparring partner that everything is okay and that our play fighting wasn't too rough. Think of it this way. You're wrestling with another chimp on the ground or, you know, an ancestor of a common ancestor with us and a chimp. And then if you're laughing, it means that everything's okay. But if you aren't laughing, then it's a very obvious signal that something's not okay. It's not fun anymore, and this maybe should stop. To prove this theory, a psychologist listened to recordings of chimps, bonobos, gorillas, and orangutans being tickled, and then compared it to humans laughing and found that there were similarities between the two sounds. But apes aren't the only animals known to laugh. Science has proven that if you tickle a rat, it will also laugh, 
And if two rats are wrestling, they will make this laughing noise as long as the rats are about the same size. If one of the rats is way bigger, then it's not fun for the little rat and that rat doesn't laugh. And by laugh, we don't mean like the rats out there going like, ha ha ha, we mean more it's a 50 kilohertz chirp. It doesn't sound like our laugh at all. But for a rat, that sound means happiness. There are other sounds that animals will make to signal happiness as well. Dogs make that huffing noise, which will signal willingness to play and also happiness. Though it doesn't have the same sound as human laughter either, but it's used in similar ways. It's a vocal and social sign of happiness. Dolphins make specific noises during play fighting. And as we learned earlier though, humor and laughter aren't necessarily the same thing. The question really is at its base level, do animals have a sense of humor, right? We aren't quite sure because animals don't have complex languages. So they won't have the ability to get jokes in the way that we do if you were listening earlier. Most animals don't talk to each other in that way and definitely can't talk to us. But Coco the gorilla knows sign language and she has been known to make her own jokes. She was once asked, what is hard? And she answered with rock and also work. She understands language. Another time, she tied her trainer's shoelaces together and then made the sign for to have him chase her, <laughs> which sounds a lot like a joke to me. Many scientists point to these examples as animals understanding humor, if in a rudimentary way, and maybe show why humans started laughing in the first place. It's a signal everything's okay, and from there, we've kind of evolved it into like a business, but also a way of interacting with each other. There are many theories on how and why a sense of humor developed in humans, and one is related to the social brain hypothesis, which says that human brains evolved so that we could live in bigger groups. Bigger brains mean better communication. Better communication means better group interaction. And laughter and humor are a way of signaling to the group that we're all a-okay. It's also a way to bond socially. Incongruity theory says we laugh because something is unexpected or unsurprising, and this is when something normal is twisted in such a way that it induces laughter, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier about your brain processing something and telling you that it's funny. For those of you that understand how humor is constructed in stand-up and things, make sure you stick around. Like I've mentioned, we have a special guest. Superiority theory is that humans started using humor to make themselves feel better than others. You laugh at someone less fortunate than you, and that raises you up. And that theory goes all the way back to like Plato and Aristotle. Kind of sounds like a dick move. Uh, but then there's this relief theory, which says we have humor to help make us feel better. It releases pent-up nervous energy. And Sigmund Freud wrote about this one, saying it was a way to release sexual repression, not so much about stress, but that was like Freud's M.O., Calm down, Freud. And many feel that humor and laughter are actually good for your health. Laughter makes you feel better. You know, laughter is the best medicine. That's actually not entirely true. It does release neurochemicals into your body, dopamine, which calms you down. It helps you feel good. It lowers levels of inflammation, which helps you heal. It increases blood flow, stretches muscles, helps the flow of oxygen, reduces blood sugar. All of these things are great for helping you heal but it's only part of the thing. The same stuff is diet and exercise. Note, but it's just laughter. It also helps with mental and emotional health. Even though studies have shown health benefits, laughter alone can't cure disease, can't prevent disease. It's something that helps you get in the right mood, helps make you stay positive, and helps make you feel better in general. 
which in turn will help your body heal itself. One doctor even recommended pairing 30 minutes of exercise three times per week with 15 minutes of laughter a day, which is kind of awesome. Although that, when you think about it, that's a lot of laughter to have to schedule in during the day. But beyond health, you know, emotional and physical, there are collective benefits of having a sense of humor. It helps create social bonds, collective bonds. If I say a joke and everyone laughs, now we're all on the same team. I feel good, they all feel good. It's also a trait many feel is important for good leaders. It helps calm tense situations. It improves team building. It improves team morale. And one survey found that 84% of those asked thought people with a good sense of humor would do a better job at work. Another study found that the two traits that people look for most in a leader is work ethic and sense of humor. And one study done in France found that women are three times more likely to give their phone number to a guy if he was funny. I haven't met that many funny French people, but it sounds like pretty good odds. So we have evolved to laugh and find things humorous, but just because we've evolved to do it and just because we understand what happens in our brains doesn't mean that we understand everything. But could we create something like artificial intelligence that has a sense of humor? Now, before we get to that, we've got our associate producer, Blair. Say, say hello, Blair. Hey. Blair's going to tell you one of his jokes. All right. A man walks into the zoo. The only animal in the entire zoo is a dog. It's a shih tzu. <laughs> it's not good if I'm laughing harder. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. It's good, Blair. Artificial intelligence and humor. Could we program like a humor bot? Robots can do a lot of things. They can make recipes. They can play games. They can win at Jeopardy. They can even think for themselves to a certain extent. But humor, for some reason, is very difficult for robots to grasp. Robots capable of humor is sort of the final frontier for artificial intelligence. According to a professor of computer science at Yale, a machine must understand the full range and nuance of human emotion before it can be deemed capable of creative thought. Some believe that humor or comedy, the key is unlocking an emotional intelligence. And if they can do that, it will change artificial intelligence forever. Humor is extremely complex and it's subjective and it embodies the complexities of lateral thinking and problem solving. If you can teach that to AI, I mean, that's a game changer. As the science of laughter and humor intensifies, researchers and engineers are racing to get machines to understand and even tell their own jokes. Although they haven't been particularly successful at this. There have been a whole bunch of attempts. A report in MIT Technology Review showed that researchers at Virginia Tech have designed an artificial intelligence system which would recognize funny pictures. It's something that humans learn early on. It's maybe even in preschool in some cases. And the idea is they were training this computer system to recognize what was funny and what wasn't, humor. The team created a database of 6,400 images, mostly clip art, which sounds terrible. Half of these were intended to be humorous and the other half were intended to not be humorous. Humans were then used to judge which ones were funny and which ones weren't. And that was used to generate an algorithm to understand specific object categories which contributed to humor. The AI system was then encouraged to create a database on its own, trying to learn what was funny and what wasn't. It found mostly that, quote, in general, animate objects like humans and animals are more likely sources of humor compared to inanimate objects, end quote. So humans are funny, a vase is not funny. 
After a lot of testing, the study found the algorithm was able to transform funny images into unfunny images 95% of the time. Mostly, they would replace certain animate objects with inanimate objects, so a funny person with a not funny vase. When asked to make images funnier, though, that's a lot harder. The algorithm performed only at about a 28% success rate. Not so good. Scientists have been trying to get to the forefront of robot comedians for decades. So we kind of pulled together some of our favorite attempts at robot humor. Another one of the artificial tests developed is JAPE, the joke analysis and production engine that generates punning riddles from a humor-independent lexicon. It was then judged by 8 to 11-year-olds whether or not that was a joke or not, which seems kind of weird. There's also the system to augment non-speaker's dialogue using puns, which is an acronym for stand-up, and that explored how humor might be used to help non-speaking children learn to use language more effectively. It's helping people kind of understand language by way of humor. There's also the sarcasm detecting program, SASI. This could recognize a sarcastic sentence in a product review, which sounds incredible, actually. You could make half of BuzzFeed's content with this machine alone, and it has a 77% accuracy by scanning 66,000 Amazon.com product reviews. With three different human annotators tagging the sentences for sarcasm, the team was able to train a computer to identify which of these reviews were sarcastic and which weren't. Of course, our favorite one was Deviant. The double entendre via noun transfer program. Essentially, it found the perfect spot in natural language to insert a that's what she said joke. <laughs> it just sounds great. But it's really, really hard for robots to be funny because scientists haven't completely figured out humor yet either. Where it comes from in our brains, sure, we get that. I mean, parts of it. And we understand the social implications. But if we don't understand humor 100%, it's hard to teach a robot how to do that. Secondly, humor is different from person to person. You know, when, a, when I teach a computer what's funny and what isn't funny, that might not work for you. It would really just work for me. And humor comes from experience and intelligence, and it's more likely we can program a robot to predict what a specific person would find funny than what everyone would find funny. And this happened in 2015 when a Microsoft robot successfully picked funny captions for New Yorker cartoons. They taught it, though, to pick funny captions, but it was a very specific case. It had to only pick between two captions, and somebody had decided one of those was funny and one of those wasn't funny. Humor also requires some semblance of spontaneity. Jokes come from an unplanned response to something else, and they're usually unpredictable. This would take a robot to have a very complex brain. It would have to be able to react, process what was said, and then independently think of a humorous response based on what that robot already knows was historically funny, and then what would be funny to the person perceiving the joke. Think of how complicated our brain is that we can do that without thinking about that whole process. You tell me a joke, and then I spit a joke right back at you that I know you would find funny because of my experience with you and my experience maybe hearing or telling that joke in the past. That's a lot going on, and we can do it in a heartbeat. Machines have to be taught everything in order to do that process. It's also difficult because robots, you know, they're computers, so they're smarter than us in some ways, they're faster than us in many ways, and that can pose a problem when teaching something about humor because the researcher had a robot tell her a joke, but it was, she didn't get it. It was over her head. 
And that, I guess, comes back to the robot's inability to read the room, but, you know, they didn't teach it that. So this is why humor is so hard, especially in robotics. Not only do we not understand humor in ourselves, but the aspects we do understand, they vary from person to person, community to community, country to country, and we've yet to build any AI complex enough to go through all of these different brain processes and finding out what's funny in a short enough time to replicate a very complex human emotion, because that's also part of it. As the old joke says, what's the most important part of humor? Timing. Doesn't work when you're not in the room with me. The only times we've succeeded in making a computer funny are from pre-programming. Like the Japanese robot that responded to the question, how many people work at this factory with? We have two swans. <laughs> it recognized the setup of the question, how many, and then it came up with this ridiculous answer. And we as humans recognize that as humor, but this is a comprehension thing programmed into the computer, and it's not exactly planned intelligent humor. People are working on this, of course, but it's going to be a long time before we crack this final humorous frontier. Humor is pretty pervasive throughout our society, so he invited one of my comedian friends here in to talk to us about what makes something funny. But before we do that, let me just have my new producer, Brian, here tell us one of his favorite jokes. He's really close to me right now. So, Brian, say hey to the people. Hello. Okay, Brian, tell us your joke. All right, a pirate walks into a bar with a steering wheel on the front of his pants. The bartender says, what's that thing for? And the pirate says, I don't know, but it's driving me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few theories out there about what makes something funny, Matt. I'm sure you've got your own. Yes, yeah. and they're not quite as scientific, but uh, I, I'll, I'll see if I can keep up. Okay, so we've got the superiority theory. We mm -hmm. talked about these a little earlier. Uh, it makes, you know, you feel better about yourself because you made fun of someone else. Right, um, schadenfreude. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes, this is like his baby, and uh, he says that humor arises from a, quote, sudden glory felt when we recognize our supremacy to others and we're laughing at the misfortunes of others. This is this is like the essence of slapstick humor. Right. You know, somebody's it's getting kicked in the nuts. Yeah, it's saying, I'm glad that that's not me. Yeah. I'm laughing because... I don't have to deal with that kind of pain. I don't have that kind of stress in my life. Look at that idiot. Poor guy. Yeah. Poor or guy. An, well, an idiot. Poor guy poor, poor or idiot. idiot. If they deserve it, then I think it's compounded even further. Yeah. And then there's the incongruity theory. That's when two things don't go together. Mm -hmm. I imagine this is something that you... That's something that with. I think is, is far wider spread across all of humor. It, okay. It's just the idea of absurdity. And absurdity is the key element at the core of almost all humor. Mm -hmm. where uh, something does not make sense, something does not add up. Like the idea of, I don't know, a buff, oiled-up Bernie Sanders. That is weird. That is weird. That's really weird. The <laughs> idea of, of Bernie Sanders, uh, most people, whether they like him or they don't like him, they aren't necessarily thinking of him as a sex symbol. Uh, so to put, yeah, just shirtless and just like, you know, massive, massive Arnold body, ooh, lots of yeah. oil. Very, like, tan. Sure. Ooh. But that, that's my point. Is white hair would really stand out, though. It might, you know, right. like, shock a white hair. It is, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's like, uh, I don't know, like a, a turkey by groceries right. on oh, thing. There was a joke that I read in, in, relative to the incongruity yeah. theory. Two fish are in a tank. Mm -hmm. And the one fish looks at the other fish and says, you know how to drive this thing? 
<laughs> so what makes it's it's really a bad. It's really bad. It's it's not. But it was an example used by an joke, academic. But it, but it 100 is the incongruity theory. It's the idea that fish can't drive. So fish if fish can't drive, but they're saying that they're driving on some level, that is funny because it yeah. doesn't make sense. Right. If something doesn't add up, the wider the divide between what makes sense in that context and what is actually happening, the the straight and the absurd. So mm-hmm. if it's a scene or if, if it's a scene between two people, let's say, like you're watching a, a play or a video or, or just having a conversation and one of you is behaving completely normally and the other person is doing something abnormally. Uh, this is a bad example, but let's say you you have a bad neighbor who, um, who keeps... Uh, who keeps letting their dogs uh, poop in your lawn. Mm. Every time the door opens, the dogs run right into your lawn, poop, and run right back. And you're trying to argue with this guy, like, hey, you got to stop letting them do this. And instead of getting defensive or treating it as something wrong, the person is just like, <laughs> yeah, they keep they keep, they keep, keep crapping in your yard. That's so funny. <laughs> right, it's right. It's like, you, you really need to clean up your yard. Your yard is filthy. That is absurd because an, an ordinary person would not be that right. lackadaisical and happy about it and not consider that odd behavior. Right. So incongruity is is essentially that, like you were saying, ambiguity, illogical impossibility, mm-hmm. irrelevance, or inappropriateness. There's also the relief theory, which we mentioned earlier. I don't know if this is as important. That's the idea that you feel relief based on your humor. I think that it is very important. It's okay. actually very important because if you are holding in a lot of tension, laughter is at its core a release of tension, at least sure. according to some prevailing theories. Right. Um, and if the thing that is making you laugh in some way touches on the source of that anxiety, yeah. you're going to laugh that much harder. So like if you're uh, in a bad marriage and you have... Uh, you're watching something funny that, or you ha- there's a funny joke that's related to bad marriages, and somehow mm-hmm. you're you going to laugh, laugh that. that much more because you not only uh, identify with the people on screen, but it also is you releasing the tension because your marriage maybe isn't quite that bad. Right. So um, it's almost a combination of of relief and yeah. the idea of superiority, and like, sure. oh gosh, I'm glad I'm not. <laughs> Glad I'm not there. Right, it's like, but I recognize this and I can identify with it. Why is, for example, the Dilbert comic strip so funny to people who work in white collar jobs? It's I actually don't it, know why it's that funny. I actually, I used to love it as a kid, even <laughs> though I didn't know what they were talking about. Because right. I, it's I a liked talking dog and a dog and cat. You know, yeah, like, and like, and you know, they're kind of miserable, and it's satirizing those kinds of white collar elements. You know memos that don't matter, meetings that go on forever, sure. clients that are terrible. Um, and because they associate with that, they can people can find it funny and they will mm-hmm. maybe tap into a, a bit of stress in their own lives exactly. and find more relief. They'll okay, find yeah. it especially funny. Okay, I get that for yeah. sure. There's also, uh, this one I really like, the mechanical theory, which mm-hmm. I'd never heard of before. So this is uh, kind of breaking down gags into something like component parts. Sure. So in um, in comedy training or especially in improv or sketch comedy writing, there's something called, uh, the, the Upright Citizens Brigade f- calls it game. And I think this is the easiest way to explain it. And it's that once you establish a pattern, which is, um, let's say, let's go back to the example of the, the neighbor whose dogs poop in your, in your yard. Right. Sure. Every time that that door opens, let's say you finally get your, your lawn clean, clean and you're about to go back in your house. And then as soon as that other door opens, we know those dogs are to come and poop in your yard again. If we as an audience have found humor in this premise, in the premise of the dogs pooping, Every time that door opens, we know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And if the comedy is written well, 
the effects of it are gonna heighten. It's gonna be somehow bigger. Let's say maybe there's more dogs. Like at first it's just one dog, then it's two dogs come out, then it's five dogs. And then, it's like, wait. Then it, the dogs have diarrhea, then the right. diuretic dogs like, Sure, do then the neighbor else. comes out with yeah. the dogs and is pooping with the dogs. Right, you yeah. know, and, just kind of keep building on that. Right. And that's like the mechanical idea is that is we Is that can, the more you repeat it until it can no longer uh, realistically be repeated without being strange. Right, it's not funny anymore because it's just too out there. Exactly, but at the same time, you need time between these repetitions of the pattern to allow the audience to settle back and not be as engaged. You okay. need, it's what's called resting the game. Mm -hmm. There's also something called the benign violation theory, which uh, it builds on work by a linguist. Uh, it, integrates existing humor theories, and it tries to say that humor occurs when three different things are satisfied. So tell me if this sounds about right. The okay. situation is a violation. Yes. The situation is benign, and both of those perceptions occur simultaneously. So picture a Venn diagram, right? Mm -hmm. Play fighting and tickling makes us laugh. Both of those things make us laugh, but only if it's not too much play fighting mm -hmm. or too little tickling. Right. Because it on- has to fit in the middle. On some level- you have to be affected emotionally or psychologically by what's going on for it to actually have a real reaction. My, the best sketch teacher I ever had, and I, I think honestly, she's one of the funniest and smartest comedic writers working today. Her name's Heather Ann Campbell. She talked about how when we were all living before society, you know, whether we were living in caves or on the plains in the wilderness, you're sitting around a campfire at night. Mm. Uh, with your family or the few people you know, or maybe just alone. And there's a rustling in the bushes and you feel a tension mount because you don't know what's on the other side of those bushes. It could be a panther that's gonna pounce out, pounce out and, and kill you and your whole yeah. family. And for a moment you're terrified. Yeah. And then all of a sudden out hops a little bunny, an adorable little bunny. <laughs> yeah. You would start laughing hysterically, not just because on a social level you are all trying to dispel each other's tension, but because you had an expectation of something that would, what was that first rule? The situation is a violation. It's a violation. Right. So in this case, you have something invading your personal space, something that you cannot control, whose identity you cannot ascertain. Mm -hmm. And then it's benign. It's so not it's a- rule too. It's right. benign, but it's, it's also a violation. Exactly, that makes it funny. Right. So like at, at its core, this explains why edgier humor can offer bigger results, bigger laughter, bigger reactions, because the closer you can get to someone's threshold of tension or fear without tipping over onto the side where they're offended or scared, mm -hmm. the harder that they will laugh when they see that it is benign. Got it. It's almost like understanding these theories can help you look at almost all comedies and figure out what tools they were using to craft all of these different jokes. Yeah, I, I would say on some level, while you do have to have some connection to your, to your own humanity to make comedy, I think, a comedian is at their core a scientist and a mathematician hmm. because all comedy, at least written comedy, is math. Okay. It, is, uh, it is not only jokes per minute, but how to space out those jokes, set them up, and pay them off in a way that feels organic, that gives the audience enough time to recover from a big laugh, understand what's going on, see where you're going, and then when you reveal the twist, 
laugh because they're surprised. Yeah. They're surprised or they're shocked or they recognize something that within themselves. Which is also kind of informs what we've been talking about before. It takes a lot of different parts of your brain in order to make comedy work and you can't just program a robot to do it because there is something to be said for understanding human nature and the audience that you are performing for mm -hmm. as well as the audience maybe that it was intended for because sure. maybe those are different. We just took a break and we were talking about how people who work in comedy tend mm -hmm. to not start laughing but just kind of comment, it's oh, like, that's, that's, well, funny. That's, that's, funny. that's funny. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. It's like, rec it's recognition of why it's funny versus I feel like the more you know about comedy, it's either something so horribly bad that your knowledge of comedy is making you so tense that you start laughing yeah. just because you can't handle it. <laughs> um, or like you feel so bad for the person, superiority theory. Or sometimes it can just be, you see the possibilities of where the funny thing could go and that's what's generating the laughter. Yeah, so it's almost yeah. like this meta level of funny. Sure. But I imagine once you get to that, you also understand why this is not funny. Sure. Well, it, it, it all comes down to what do you consider to be acceptable yeah. um, in society? And then what approaches are you willing to take to that? For example, I don't think racism is funny. Mm -hmm. I don't think racist jokes are funny. I don't think that, um, I don't think that racist stereotypes are funny. Mm -hmm. I do think that talking about racism and talking about racists is funny and can be really funny. It's all about exposing a latent truth in what we already know about a certain segment of of society. Right now, I think in in the U.S. specifically, because that's you know where we're based, we have a lot of comedy that's skirting the edge of what mm -hmm. is funny and what's not. So there have been a lot of debates in the last few years. Every time a comedian comes out saying something that they maybe shouldn't have said that offended some people. Mm -hmm. You have people coming out and saying, comedians need to watch what they say. You know, you can't say this, you can't say that. You can't make jokes about these topics. I personally believe that anything should be able to be joked about. Right. That in life, life is scary, life is hard, life is sad. And if you can find a smart way to make something less scary or to expose a truth or to bring the pain to not the victims of tragedy, but to the people who perpetrate it. Like mm -hmm. in comedy, you never talk about, you never make fun of race. You never make fun of a race. You make fun of racists. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about something uh, offensive, being funny or not funny, the question is, what is your point and is the point you want to make worth the damage that bringing up the topic offers? Sure. Uh, when it comes to humor and, and what is not funny, it seems like we tread into not funny as soon as we stop kind of following the rules that you set out and what make things funny. Right. And and one of those rules is uh, the too soon rule. And it's not a rule so much as, it, as a practice. You know, when, when someone... Uh, dies often. There's Twitter jokes moments afterward. Immediately. People have not had an, enough time to rest in between recognizing this emotion and then process it so that they can understand whether it's funny or not, which says to me why the too soon comes up. It's not so much that the joke isn't funny. It probably is funny. Mm -hmm. They just haven't had time to process their own emotion yet so they can't tap into it to make it funny, right? Yeah. It's it's not incongruous enough because you're supposed to be able to feel sad before you can say, oh, I should feel sad. Right. They haven't, they haven't dealt with that yet. So when it comes to this, the journal Social, Psychological, and Personality Science looked at a, a whole team of reactions 
uh, to jokes about Hurricane Sandy and mm -hmm. how they changed over time. So they recruited participants and they looked at the day before Sandy was supposed to hit and then months later, and they asked them to read tweets from a parody account hmm. that was a Hurricane Sandy, was at a Hurricane Sandy. And they asked, I'm impressed that whoever kept up that account kept going four months, four months later. That's a lot. So they looked at, and they had a thousand people weigh in on it. Each ranked a tweet on a scale of one to seven, whether they found it funny, upsetting, offensive, mm -hmm. boring, irrelevant, confusing. And they did this over a hundred days. And before the hurricane hit, people thought the tweets were pretty funny. Yeah. They were giving them on average between three and four on a one to seven. That right. guy or gal, whoever was running that account. We're taking the piss out of something that's potentially scary. Right. And they were trying to tap into the fear that people were having and create this humor around it. However, when the hurricane hit mm -hmm. and people realized that there was all this damage, people had died and lost their homes and, you know, they were without power, uh, humor declined. Yeah. Until it reached a low point about 15 days after Sandy's landfall, and then it started to become funny again. And that, I think, comes back to the benign violation theory. Yes. Too soon, and it's not threatening enough, and so you're on this side of the benign, then it becomes a violation, and then it kind of pulls back into yeah. that. Because the beauty of it is as time goes by, you process the events of what happened, you're able to deal with whatever tragic elements there are, but then you start to see some of the absurdities in not only what happened, but the feelings that you've had since, the feelings that other people have had since. And in the case of Hurricane Sandy, you know, you had Chris Christie getting a lot of a lot of press following Hurricane Sandy. And then people started making fun of like the jacket he was wearing sure. while he was talking about rebuilding the Jersey Shore. There are now new elements at play in this story. Mm -hmm. First, you have the unknown. The unknown is scary. We want to joke about the unknown. It's why right, people right. make a lot of jokes that involve death yes. because we're, we're afraid of the unknown and we want to make ourselves feel like we have more power over it. The more we can laugh at something, the less power it has. Then it hits and you're dealing with the actual aftermath of what's going on. You're seeing real images. You're hearing real stories and you're confronted with the truth that something bad happened. Right, and so then, now it's not funny. Now it's not funny. But then, as you move away from it, it no longer is directly affecting you and potentially the other people around you. It's no longer as heavy. And because it was bad, and we're no longer having to deal with it, we got through okay. Now we start to make fun of it again, as if to say, I was never scared of you. Another example that... Uh, people have used lately is 9-11. There's sure. a, a number of different articles I've been reading about 9-11 jokes and how they're becoming more and more popular. Mm -hmm. And in part, and this offends a lot of people, I want to preface just saying that we're not making fun of 9-11. We're not making fun of the people who lost their lives on 9-11. No. But what happens is the first jokes to appear were hours after the tower fell, uh, the first tower fell. And part of the reason that they started to appear was because of talking about, like talking around, talking mm -hmm. about things like the power of pride bumper stickers and talking about things like that. And today we're getting jokes about things like never forget. I'll, I'll give you a bit of my experience because it, it is personal. My dad was across the street mm. from Tower One when it got hit. Wow. So my dad nearly died. He ran away for his life. He walked across, 
I don't remember if it was the GWB or the Brooklyn Bridge to get out of the city mm -hmm. um, and found his way home. And it took hours. And we were really scared. When, when we were in, I was in middle school, I was in eighth grade at the time, it was the fall, and they weren't really giving us any information. They said something had happened to the Twin Towers, but they weren't telling us any more than that. Um, you know, my mom called the school, let us know that dad was okay, that we were okay, that we didn't have to come home from school. We sheltered three people um, from his office who didn't have anywhere to go. Like, it was a very real it's thing. very not funny. Not funny. Yeah. At all. But in the time since then, maybe because it was such a real thing, because I was right there, you know, my family's like living in New Jersey, my dad was right there when the first plane hit, and that didn't even really hit me for a few years. I personally, there's a lot about 9-11 and the culture of 9-11 especially that makes me laugh. And it's making me laugh because I know I shouldn't be laughing. It's yeah. an uncomfortable yeah. thing. Hmm. I think even though 9-11 is a tragedy, even though tragedies happen, there are ways to comment on our own suffering and our own anxiety about them that can be funny. But within the benign violation theory, there's this thing called psychological distance. And it sounds like that's kind of what comes into play here. So bear with me for a second. It's essentially the idea of, you know, when somebody says, oh, that's terrible that that happened to you, but you're going to laugh about this one day. Which is a horrible thing to say. It's don't, terrible. Don't say that that's to somebody who's advice. just experienced a tragedy. But, but That's so laissez-faire. Right. Yeah. But that's essentially what the psychological distance is. So if, yeah. you were gonna, if you were walking home today and you got hit by a car, you'd think it was funnier several years from now than you would the day after it happened. Sure. Several years from now, you might see the humor in that situation. You might see yourself like, oh man, remember when I was got hit by that car because I was like looking at my phone and texting this girl that I mm -hmm. used to date or doing this thing or ordering dinner. And right, now, like you know, what an idiot I was. Well, I was wow. so distracted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like here's, here's an example. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, I had never asked anybody out before. Mm. And I asked out a girl to the seventh grade social, because we didn't have dances, we had socials. socials. Her, uh, her name was Gretchen, and I asked her out, and she said yes. Now, in movies, I had always seen, after a guy asked somebody out, and they they were so yeah. excited, they would yeah. like, yeah. or like dance or something. In those Did movies, you do that? The oh yeah, I ran outside and I started <laughs> dancing. And at the time, when I realized like how embarrassing that was, it was not funny. It was yeah. not funny, and I was mortified for many but years. But now I just laughed. Right. Because that's it's hilarious. very, very funny that I thought that was acceptable behavior. It's also funny, though. Let me kind of re-humor theory that. Yeah. It's not funny at the time, but you give a little bit of time from that. You get the, you know, tragedy plus time equals humor. Right. You get the idea of psychological distance. It's also funny on top of those things in the benign violation theory because I have some emotional attachment to that. I have asked girls out, you know, when I was in seventh grade, I asked a girl out to go to the seventh grade. We were at seventh grade camp, and I mm -hmm. asked her out, and it turned out that this other guy asked her out knowing that I was gonna. What about physical distance? Do you feel like that has that plays a part? Sure. You know, like the fact that your dad was in New York at the time of 9-11, and, 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 you know, my family, we were in the Midwest, and people who lived in California. Do you feel like people on the West Coast, for example, or maybe maybe even not the West Coast, like in, on, a, on a farm in the middle of nowhere in Canada, like a whole other country, but their physical distance is so much further, do you think they would find something that's not funny 
funnier sooner, in your opinion? I think that being in New Jersey and having a father working in New York and having him be right there when it happened, I had friends. Like, I knew at least one person who had lost her father in the attack. Right. I knew another uh, family friends whose dad was supposed to be in, I don't know if it was Tower 1 or Tower 2 that day, but his flight got delayed. Yeah. Like, it's like all these little things that people are touching on it. I think that in some way, it'll make some people not want to laugh at it longer, but it will make also some people laugh at it a lot sooner because they were there, they were a part of it, and they want to turn the fear and the anguish into humor mm. faster. Yeah, Versus, they, I feel they get like- get a better benefit from it. Right. Versus, I feel like some people in the Midwest or on the West Coast or maybe in the South, after the initial- fear of there's going to be another attack had passed, some people, I think, got over it a lot quicker because it didn't happen to them. It's almost like a world away, especially people who, you know, sure. they don't relate to New Yorkers necessarily. But there were also people who took it more as an attack on America. And because it didn't happen yeah. to anyone they knew, it became that much bigger of an issue. So physical distance is almost zero then. Because it's like, yeah. I'm in America, this attacked America, physical distance is even exactly. closer than people who were in New York. When you are close to 9-11, you get over it a little bit faster because you were a part of it. You can relate. The humor around 9-11 can make you laugh harder because it is part of your personal experience. But there's also comedic timing. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not just when to say it in a timeline, like a month, a two months, a day, an hour, whatever. It's also when to say it within the context of a joke. Sure. Right? So in a 2007 paper from Texas A&M University Commerce, uh, a linguistics lab looked at comedic timing. Mm -hmm. And based on their hypothesis, whether you pause before you deliver a punchline or whether you just roll right into the punchline, it actually doesn't matter at all. Punchline timing less important than maybe we've been led to believe? I don't know if that's true. I would say people put way too much emphasis on timing and less emphasis on the joke itself. What are they putting emphasis on? Timing. Timing? I see what you did there. I, no? Yeah. Was that not no, funny? That was, Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say that if you pause too long before you deliver a punchline and the punchline isn't amazing, the longer you wait to deliver it, the better it has to be. Because the longer you wait, the more the audience thinks that the following punchline oh, is man, gonna be gonna amazing. Be so good, it's and gonna be. Oh. They think that you think it's amazing and they start to hate you for it. Mm, it's about you're kind of keeping it from them at that right. point. It's, and a, it, it's a talk between the audience. Well, it's also and you saying that you're superior to the audience. You're saying that I don't need to give this to you because it's so good that when I give it, no matter when I give it, you're gonna laugh, which isn't true. Right. It creates a distance between the audience. At its core, it's about managing tension with the audience. Timing is really, it's at the corner of relatability and relaxation. It's yeah. like you're relaxed when you're delivering it. You know when to deliver it to make it funny. And we can relate to you because you're not overdoing it. You're not trying to be a comedian. You're just being. Humor is eternally complex, mm -hmm. that all of these things vary from person to person, from culture right. to culture, from place to place. And that's why we have trouble kind of wrapping our brains around it all mm -hmm. the time. And some people will find things funny and some things won't. A quick thank you to Matt Lieberman, who you can find on the tweet machine at M-A-T-T-L-I-E-B-E-R-M-A-N. He's all over the internet and the dude is a great guy. 
While you're out there, you can follow us and our shows on Facebook, Facebook Watch, and of course, the classic YouTube show. We're easy to find. Just look for Seeker. Thank you so much for hanging out with us here on Seeker Plus. I know I've asked for a lot already, but if you could take a minute and subscribe to the show and give it a rating on your favorite podcast app, that would be incredible. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Seeker Plus. Seeker Plus.